life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to make sure that you guys, the public, and our students are up to date on what is happening in the world of science. And we're also charged with separating sense from nonsense, fact from fiction. And of course, these days, that is quite a challenge uh, because these are the days of the so-called fake facts. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there that needs to be uh, kind of uh, clarified for you guys, and we'll try to do that here today. If you have any specific questions about uh, science-related matters, you can give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your comments to 514-800. Let me start by asking you a question. In 1904, Thomas Hicks won the marathon at the St. Louis Olympic Games. He took a stimulant that at the time was legal. In 1920, Agatha Christie based the plot of her book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, on this same chemical. What was it? So if you know the answer to that, about the supplement that Thomas Hicks took in 1904, which was legal, same chemical that uh, was at the center of the plot of the mysterious affair at Styles. You give us a call at 514-790-0800, and we can chat some more uh, about this uh, very, very interesting uh, uh, story. All right, but now let me get down to uh, another very, very interesting uh, story and a current one. Alexei Navalny took a few sips, sips of tea at the airport in Tomsk, Siberia, before he boarded a plane bound for Moscow. On the flight, he became so ill that the plane had to make an emergency landing in Omsk, where the doctors suspected, but they were unable to confirm that they were looking at some sort of drug overdose. Since Navalny was an activist who had been investigating government corruption in Russia, and had previously claimed to have been sprayed by some sort of toxic chemical by assailants, a German humanitarian organization called Cinema for Peace took an interest in the case, and they chartered a plane to bring Navalny to Berlin, where they thought that he would get better treatment. Well, in Berlin, doctors concluded that the symptoms that included vomiting, sweating, respiratory distress, his eye pupils were pinpoint. He was foaming at the mouth and had a very slow heart rate. That these symptoms were consistent with the inhibition of cholinesterase, an enzyme that normally degrades the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. This suggested to them possible exposure to a nerve agent, a chemical that interferes with the transmission of information from one nerve cell to another. Such transmission involves the release of chemicals called neurotransmitters from a nerve ending, followed by the migration of this substance across the tiny gap that separates nerve cells known as the synapse. The neurotransmitter then stimulates an adjacent cell by fitting into a receptor site on its surface, very much like a key fits into a lock. Acetylcholine was the first neurotransmitter ever discovered. It stimulates muscle contraction, it increases bodily secretions, it pinpoints pupils, and it slows the heart rate. 
Once acetylcholine has carried out its job of triggering a reaction in an adjacent cell, it is decomposed by an enzyme present in the synapse. Overstimulation is therefore prevented. It is this enzyme, acetylcholinesterase, that is inactivated by nerve agents, and unless this activity is restored, overstimulation by acetylcholine will lead to convulsions, paralysis, and respiratory failure. Blood tests carried out by a special military lab in Germany confirmed the presence of a nerve agent in the Volney system. Furthermore, the chemical belonged to a series that had been developed in the former Soviet Union in the 1970s and had been named Novichok, which means newcomer in, uh, in the Russian uh, language. Well, these newcomers were more potent than existing nerve agents, and they could be disseminated as powders or indeed as liquids. The Russians had used one of these chemicals before in the celebrated case that has come to be known as the Salisbury poisonings in the UK. Salisbury is a town in, in, in England. In 2018, Sergei Skripal, a former Russian spy who British managed to recruit as a double agent, and his daughter Yulia were poisoned with a Novichok agent that had been applied to the doorknob of their home. A passerby found the Skripals incapacitated on a park bench and alerted the police. When doctors in the hospital discovered Sergei's history and considered both Skripal's symptoms, they began to suspect that a nerve agent had been at play. Antidotes for poisoning by nerve agents have been extensively investigated. Since the 1930s, the first line of defense after exposure was the ejection of atropine, a drug derived from the belladonna plant. Belladonna derives its name from the Latin for beautiful woman, because in ancient times, women would put a few drops of belladonna juice into their eye to pull to make them look more beautiful. Anyway, atropine is named after Atropos, the goddess in Greek mythology who decides when mortals die by cutting their thread of life. Her sister Clotho spins the thread and another, Lachesis, measures its length. Atropine is known as an acetylcholine antagonist because it dislodges acetylcholine from receptor sites and thus reduces the risk of overstimulation. Atropine injection by itself is effective only for a short time. Since acetylcholinesterase remains inactivated by the nerve agent, the concentration of acetylcholine will keep increasing and eventually will overpower the protective effect of atropine. A second substance, called pralidride, must be administered to release the nerve gas from the enzyme and then destroy it. The patient can still be left with convulsions that can be treated with diazepam, that's Valium. Exactly what else may have been involved in the treatment of the Skripals is not known, but both did survive. They were given new identities and are believed to be living in New Zealand. Alexei Novolny is currently in an induced coma in a German hospital and has received similar care to the Skripals and is expected to survive. Don Sturgis was not as lucky. 
Soon after the Salisbury incident, she was poisoned when she sprayed what she thought was perfume on her wrist from a bottle her partner had found in a garbage bin. But this was no perfume. The bottle had been made to look like perfume. It was actually a very sophisticated container that had been discovered Novichok nerve agent into the UK by two Russians who were later caught on closed-circuit TV and identified as secret agents. And they are the ones who had put the agent on the doorknob that I mentioned. Sturgis was exposed to a much higher dose than the and uh, because she applied it to her wrist, she was thinner and more permeable, she was more severely affected. Unfortunately, prompt medical treatment was unable to prevent her death. Her partner, Charlie Rowley, reportedly spilled some of the contents of the perfume bottle onto his hands, but immediately washed off the oily residue that then saved his life. Of course, the Russians, in spite of overwhelming evidence, deny any involvement in these poisonings, and they even deny the existence of Novichok agents. Trump, of course, believes the Russians. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Coming up, we're going to talk about a possible relationship between zinc and COVID-19. Uh, but for now, uh, let me just repeat the question that I asked. Back in 1904, Thomas Hicks won the marathon at the St. Louis Olympic Games. He took a stimulant, which was legal at the time. The same chemical played a role in Agatha Christie's classic work, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, in which she introduced the character of Hercule Poirot. What is the chemical we are talking about? And I'm going to give you one other uh, question. Uh, roughly, within 50, within 50, how many trees are there in the world for every person in the world? So for every person in the world, how many trees are there in the world? And uh, I'll give you a leeway here, get that number right, within 50, and we'll count it as being, uh, as being correct. Okay, uh, I was talking before about uh, uh, perfume. Of course, I was talking about it in the context of a nerve agent where this uh, bottle that uh, was specially designed to hold this Novichok agent uh, was sneaked into England by Russian uh, secret agents. And uh, it looked like a bottle of perfume, but it was very cleverly constructed and it uh, contained this uh, highly, highly toxic uh, nerve agent. So it really wasn't a perfume. But of course, there are issues that arise with real perfumes as well. European perfume companies think that new regulations that are being considered by the European Union stink. Uh, based on a report published by the Scientific Committee on Consumer Safety, a ban is being proposed for a number of ingredients widely used in perfumes because of concerns about allergenicity and toxicity. It is uh, estimated that anywhere between 1% to 3% of the population have allergies to some natural ingredient that can uh, be found in uh, uh, perfumes, and these range from severe rashes to hay fever-like symptoms. Interestingly, this time, it is not synthetic chemicals that are bearing the brunt of the attack. It is natural components. That's because synthetics are actually tested for allergenicity before they are introduced. 
as far as allergens go, there are already regulations in Europe that force manufacturers to label 26 potentially allergenic components, but this could be expanded to over 100. Manufacturers are not in favor, claiming that they have voluntarily removed some compounds and the others don't pose a real risk, and that it is important to preserve Europe's, quote, olfactory heritage. Over the years, there have indeed been voluntary reformulations as evidence of adverse reactions came to light. Birch tar oil was removed because of the possibility it was carcinogenic, and eugenol, which is found in clove oil, and rose oil also, was reduced because of allergenicity, as was linalool, found in lavender. Oak moss, which has an earthy aroma, and also retards the evaporation of other components, has been restricted because of skin sensitivity, but now a total ban is being proposed. Furocumarins in oil of bergamot have been a real problem because they can cause skin discoloration when exposed to the sun. Manufacturers have been concerned about making these changes because of concerns that people would give up the product if the scent was altered from what they had become accustomed to and financial losses could be very significant, given that the perfume industry takes in over $25 billion a year. While allergies to perfume ingredients are very real, there's also a fair bit of fear-mongering from environmental groups about toxicity. One common ploy is to list a variety of chemicals that are used as fragrances, such as acetaldehyde, benzaldehyde, terpineol, pinene, and benzoacetate, and link them to joint aches, eye irritation, headaches, dizziness, and spikes in blood pressure. These effects are documented, but only when exposure is in significant amounts, not when present in tiny doses in perfumes. Another scare tactic is to link some components to sources that have been uh, identified as having sort of a repulsive image, like the anal glands of beavers. Castorium is the territory-marking secretion of both male and female beavers. It is stored in a couple of little glands near the anus, but it is not an anal secretion. Castorium has a terrible scent when concentrated, but becomes pleasant at extreme dilutions and is indeed used in perfumes. There's no health issue here. In fact, castorium is even allowed as a flavor additive in food since the tiny amounts it has a fruity taste. Its presence in perfumes is in the parts per million range, but it's enough to scare some people. And we won't even mention the presence of ambergris in some perfumes, which the scaremongers refer to as whale vomit. While it's unfair to describe perfumes as a toxic mix of chemicals, I, I have to, uh, to admit that I really don't like walking into a department store and smelling all the perfume odors mixed together, usually you find this on, on the ground floor. Uh, I actually do find that irritating. And uh, I, I think that it is uh, certainly possible that some people have adverse reactions to, to perfumes. And uh, this would include the scents that are added these days to all the hand sanitizers that are being used. I really don't see why a hand sanitizer has to have a scent. Uh, it is an exposure to substances, the sense I mean, that is absolutely unnecessary. Why take a chance of 
uh, provoking some kind of allergic reaction or some kind of sensitivity to a chemical that really does not need to, to be there. Uh, these hand sanitizers mostly contain ethanol, and ethanol has a very, very slight uh, uh, aroma. It's not a disturbing aroma, and, and you don't get any adverse reactions to that. But in order to make the product more marketable, they will add a variety of, of scents. And uh, I, I'm not in favor of this. Uh, uh, the one that uh, uh, we have uh, as we go into the chemistry building at McGill, and everyone is, of course, expected to douse their hands with this stuff as soon as they go in, uh, I find that it actually does have a very irritating smell, and uh, I don't like it. I would uh, uh, much rather just go and wash my hands with soap and water uh, because there I'm not exposed to, to any, this irritating smell. And, and uh, I can smell it on, on my hands for hours, which, which I, I really don't, don't need. So while I think you know all of the stuff that I just mentioned before uh, about uh, perfumes uh, does amount to a lot of uh, fear-mongering, I think it is also possible that, that uh, not only possible, I know that it's true, that there are products that are scented that really don't need to be uh, scented. When using a perfume, of course, you're using it because you want that scent. Well, I don't need any scents in, in my uh, uh, sanit hand uh, sanitizer. All right, we're going to uh, take a look at what is in the news, and we'll be back. And uh, after this break, we'll talk a little bit about uh, a new video that is out there uh, promoting the use of zinc supplements to try to prevent infection by the uh, coronavirus. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Before I talk about zinc, let me check in with Doris, who's been waiting a long time online here. Hi, Doris. Hello. Thank you very much. Uh, I, read, I have a mess, and I read somewhere that uh, the pill apple, they made some research at the University of Philadelphia, Thomas Jefferson, whatever, and... Uh, Ursolic acid, whatever, they try it on mice and has good result and they are going to. The story is that, unfortunately, since uh, all the changes on the, our uh, fruits, I'm not able to eat the pill. I want to ask you, I baked, I, I baked the, if I bake uh, in the micro, it has the same value as a raw one? I'm not following exactly. You're saying you can't eat apple peel because you can't digest it, or what? No, I ca I cannot chew it. I don't know. Uh, I I cannot uh, eat the peel, and I I peel it and I throw it. But uh, sometimes I bake it, and I want to know uh, if a baked uh, apple has the same value like fresh. Pretty well. I mean, heat heat will destroy some nutrients. Vitamin C is heat labile, so you will lose some of the vitamin C. But but you get enough vitamin C in many other f foods. The uh, the other compounds that are, that are in apples, which uh, have some health benefits, are the so-called polyphenols, and those are not affected by heat. Yeah. I, I'm not quite. Uh, but let's uh, say that the... I take the peel off. And if I boil it or something, uh, uh, it loses all the value? Yeah, well, it will lose the vitamin C. I don't quite understand what you mean that you can't eat it. 
What happens? I, I don't know. It, it, uh, like it goes out from my mouth. It separates in the mouth. The the pill, uh, it doesn't show like before when uh, they, they were not so transformable, the fruits. Not, uh, and no, I'm not the only one that I... <laughs> I don't know what you mean by transformed. There's nothing in apples that has been transformed. I mean, if you uh, uh, did you ever heard something about a study on that? On the uh, it was uh, uh, ursolic acid, whatever. Thomas Jefferson University oxalic in Philadelphia. Acid? Oxalic acid. They tried that on mice, and they have some oxalic acid. You're talking about O X A L I C. Ursolic acid. Which? Uh, they say that it's in the. How do you spell it? Apples. And they give the name of a professor. How, how do you spell the acid you're talking about? Ursolic, U-R-S-O-L-I-C. Ursolic, Ursolic acid. I, I, I'll have to look into that. I'll, I'll check what you. Anyway, what it you was read. Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Okay, let me. I'll, I will look into it. But and it's a professor Guang Xian Zhang. Okay, I will look into it and and get back. Okay, I'll talk about it. I'll look into it during the next break. Okay, let me let me talk about the zinc business because there's a video that's been circulating and countless people have sent this to me this past week. It's by Dr. Joshua Ritchie. And the video and Ritchie recommend dietary supplementation with zinc to protect against COVID-19. And this video has been zooming around the internet. And the question is, how much importance should we put on it? So let's look at a little bit of background here. Uh, as a young physician, now this goes back to 1968, Ritchie was part of a group that demonstrated the benefits of vitamin E supplementation in preventing anemia in formula-fed premature babies. After that, I can't find anything that he has published in any area of research. Uh, he is um, an Orthodox rabbi, but I mean, he is a legitimate medical doctor. But his practice today is focused on life coaching, marriage, and youth counseling. In the video in question, he claims that he has carried out research on zinc supplementation and advises taking 30 to 40 milligrams of zinc a day as a weapon against infection by COVID-19. I can't find any evidence of any of this research. Sir, it has not been published. I checked on PubMed, I looked under his name, uh, and there's just there's nothing there. Uh, but Ritchie is not the first to make a connection between infectious diseases and zinc. There have been numerous studies demonstrating that the zinc ion, zinc plus two, has antiviral effects. And this is uh, likely by upregulating the production of interferon alpha. And this is an important chemical uh, in the immune system. Zinc also has anti-inflammatory activity through modulation of re regulatory T-cell function. And this can limit the cytokine storm, which is associated with COVID-19. As a possible further benefit, zinc has antibacterial properties and may prevent bacterial co-infection when it comes to viral diseases. Some experiments have also shown that zinc inhibits RNA polymerase, and that's an enzyme the coronavirus needs in order to multiply. But, 
and put this in capital letters, but all these effects have been shown in vitro, that is in the lab. There are no human clinical trials that have demonstrated the benefit of zinc supplements in the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. While zinc deficiency is documented in the developing world, it is unlikely to be significant in the West since the recommended daily allowance for adults, which is about 10 milligrams, is easily met given that the mineral is present in meat, in grains, in dairy, in nuts, and in beans. Vegetarians may have a slightly more difficult time meeting requirements, but as I said, because it's there in nuts and, and beans and grains, uh, it is unlikely that they don't meet the requirements. So in summary, there's no doubt that zinc is required for the proper functioning of the immune system, but there's no evidence that people who become infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus have low levels. And there are no studies that have shown an improvement in patients with zinc supplements. However, up to 40 milligrams of zinc in supplement form is recognized as being safe. So the advice being given in the circulating video is not harmful and may possibly be of benefit for some people. However, it should be appreciated that this recommendation is based on theory rather than on clinical evidence. Until there's a proper peer-reviewed publication on the effect of zinc supplementation in case of COVID-19, any claims of benefit should be regarded as mere opinion. Uh, so I, I can't tell you, uh, you know, that there's going to be any benefit. No one else can because the experiments just have not been done. It's a theoretical possibility. But in this particular video, uh, there is no evidence that is offered. And I think it is quite irresponsible to put a video like this, telling people to take zinc supplements, saying that it is based on research that the originator of this video, uh, Dr. Ritchie, has carried out, when we do not have any evidence that any such research has been done. It certainly has not been um, uh, published. We may eventually learn that zinc does play an important role in COVID-19. But uh, as of now, we just don't have enough uh, information. And uh, I mentioned the, the connection of uh, COVID-19 to cytokine storm. Cytokines are, are molecules in the immune system, and when they're overproduced, uh, they can produce some of the symptoms that we see in COVID-19. But there's a new theory that is being propounded, and this refers to another uh, uh, peptide in the system called bradykinin, and that is also involved in the immune system, and it now seems that it is overproduction of that, which may also be responsible for symptoms, and there's research on the way to see if there are any drugs that will prevent the overproduction of bradykinin. So we're learning more and more about this disease, but unfortunately, we still do not have a solution. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll take a break, check traffic, and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Isn't uh, Google wonderful? All I needed from the uh, caller that we had on a few minutes ago was the words Philadelphia Jefferson Lab and Apple Peel. And uh, I've been able to track down exactly what she has been uh, talking about. 
Uh, she was referring to a compound that is found in uh, apple peel, also in the peel of other fruits, pears, prunes, etc., called ursolic acid. And in this experiment at Thomas Jefferson University in, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, they carried out some experiments with ursolic acid uh, in high doses, uh, and uh, the experiments were on mice. They were on mice that are paralyzed, and uh, they are models for uh, people with advanced stages of multiple sclerosis. And what they found was that the uh, animals, after being treated with large doses of ursolic acid, were able to walk again. And this suggests that uh, their worsening condition was halted. And the researchers say if the results were to be the same in humans, this would commensurate to patients walking with a stick instead of requiring a wheelchair. Well, as I've said many, many times, uh, men are not mice. Uh, it's true that early experiments with mice uh, can be uh, interesting and can serve as a springboard to more research. And eventually, they may have some uh, benefit in, in humans. But uh, a study like this is a long, long way from uh, showing any kind of uh, clinical evidence. So uh, eating apple peel is not going to have any effect on multiple sclerosis. Uh, in this particular case, yes, they did use ursolic acid, which is found in fruit peels and apple peel, for example. But they did not use the apple peel. They used high doses of this chemical to carry out this research. Uh, there's also some evidence that ursolic acid, again, not in doses that are found in apple peel, but in higher doses as a pure compound in the laboratory, in vitro, as we say, have the ability to impair the multiplication of cancer cells. So again, this is something that, that merits some further uh, investigation. But uh, I would not, uh, at this uh, point, put any kind of emphasis on treating multiple sclerosis with eating apple peels. So anyway, there is the, um, the story. Okay, so I did ask the, the question about the uh, uh, St. Louis uh, uh, Olympics in 1904, and uh, perhaps Jerry has an answer. Hi, Jerry. Hi, how are you? Okay, so what do you say? So, well, uh, I know that Agatha Christie, one of her favorite poisons was strychnine, so I would imagine they gave him strychnine as well. Yes, it was strychnine. And, How does uh, that work to make him run faster? It's a stimulant. It's, a, it's like caffeine. It's in the same uh, family. Depending on the dose, of course. Depending on the dose, and it actually can be effective. Uh, strychnine used to be uh, quite commonly prescribed as, as a, a stimulant. In fact, uh, in, in uh, the Mysterious Affair Styles, in Agatha Christie's book, uh, she describes how this was used as a, a stimulant, and in those days it was quite commonly available. Uh, today, of course, it's illegal to be used uh, as a, an uh, athletic stimulant. A anyway, uh, there's an interesting little footnote to this whole story of the, of the 1904 uh, Olympics. Uh, it turns out that while Thomas Hicks did, in fact, take uh, uh, the stimulant, uh, he did not uh, finish first in, in, the, uh, in the games, although uh, it was thought that he did. He actually trailed Fred Lortz. However, Lortz had abandoned the race after nine miles. After covering much of the course by car, he re-entered the race five miles before the finish. 
So although it looked like he finished first, Hicks actually did legitimately finish first, but the, the but at first the medal was given to to the cheater Fred Lors. Anyway, this was discovered by officials who then disqualified Lors. Claimed he claimed it it was a, a joke. Anyway, had the race been run under current rules, Hicks would also have been disqualified for using strychnine. Uh, his assistants had given him a dose of roughly one milligram of strychnine. Uh, and uh, some brandy as well uh, for the race. Brandy is, uh, I think, still allowed. <laughs> anyway, the first dose of strychnine did not revive him for long, so he was given a second dose. As a result, he collapsed after finishing. Uh, and uh, luckily for him, he was not given another dose because that could have been uh, fatal. And uh, Agatha Christie, of course, liked uh, toxins uh, because she was trained as a pharmacist. So many of her books were based on toxins, as was the Mysterious Affair Styles. So now at least we know that back in 1904, Thomas Hicks was given a stimulant and he actually came first in the uh, marathon of the Olympic Games. Although he did not cross the finish line first, that was Fred Lord who had cheated and who had taken a car somewhere during the race and then re-entered uh, the race. So there's an interesting uh, little story for you about the uh, 1904 Olympics, which, which actually was held in conjunction with uh, uh, a World's Fair in uh, in St. Louis in 1904. And there's something else about that 1904 uh, World's Fair in St. Louis that is interesting and famous because that is when the hot dog was first introduced. And uh, it was a, a sausage vendor who at first was just um, handing out sausages and gloves to patrons. And they would just take the gloves and eat the, the sausage. And then he ran out of gloves. And nearby was a flatbread maker. And he rushed over. He took some of this flatbread and wrapped it around the sausage. And this became the, uh, the first hot dog. Okay, let me go to uh, Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre's not there. Jean-Pierre had a question about scotch tape. Too bad, because uh, scotch tape is an interesting story. All right, let me go to Mark. Hey, Mark. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Schwartz. Hi. Hi. Uh, I have noticed uh, with the hand sanitizers that many of them are complete alcohol, ethanol, I gather. I don't know in what concentration, and I'm just wondering if a child or uh, a silly adult ever tries swallowing this, how dangerous can this ethanol be from the hand sanitizers? Well, the, the ethanol content is anywhere usually between 60 and 90 percent. Uh, most of them have about 70 percent uh, alcohol. But it's it's in a, a slurry, you know, it's in a, a a gel, so it would be very hard to consume a significant amount of that. Uh, but I yes, I mean, if someone took a, you know a whole bottle of sanitizer and ate it, which is really what you'd have to do because it's a gel kind of material, you would have a good dose of alcohol. Uh, I suspect that some people may actually have tried that, although I'd never seen that documented. Oh, so I, it's it that really is not a big worry. I think people do do. All right, so much for um, uh, hand sanitizers. It's um, uh, too bad that we lost the scotch. We have the scotch tape. No, oh, okay. We have lost the scotch tape guy. Uh, hopefully, we'll call back next week because there are interesting stories about scotch tape that uh, I'm quite eager to t talk to you about. But uh, I will put 
my eagerness on hold because we're getting the signal here that our time is up. And uh, once again, this hour has just flown by, but fret not because we will be back same time, same station next week to unravel more of the mysteries of science. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz, and I will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I hope that all of the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>